Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. You're listening to Agenda by Women in the Arts. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton. Coming up today on Agenda, we're really going to try and counterbalance this week's consistently awful news stories. So we found a few positive angles. Um, American musician St. Vincent is directing a female-led adaptation of Dorian Gray. Solange quit Twitter because she's, in quotations and uh, language warning here, done with racist, ugly-ass fuckboys. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Um, A South Australian school has installed free sanitary vending machines and there's an incredible play on at Belvoir Theatre at the moment called Here, uh, written by Taylor Mack, that we'll be talking to director Anthea Williams, associate artist Lucky Price and lead actor Kurt Pimblett. So definitely stick around for that in about uh, the next 15 minutes. We've also been thinking a lot today about who we admire, respect and look up to and I've been in the habit of uh, direct Instagram messaging people that I love lately that I don't know. Uh, just a few weeks ago I DM'd Melbourne musician Squid Janini and told her how much I love her music and how I've been playing her latest track on repeat and I also asked if I could have a t-shirt with her name on it. You love slipping into the DMs I really, I've noticed, yeah. especially in the last year I feel like you definitely <laughs> reach new kind of fangirl heights. But also I realised, sorry, it's small caveat here uh, you can actually unsend dms you did tell we me we tested this, this the we other day we tested it and it's really useful if you useful. wake up in the morning you're like oh god yeah who that have you nice. fangirled over oh mate i i'm yeah I'm a big fangirl. I think like when i moved to new york i just like hand wrote um the artist wangechi mutu like in hindsight like very very creepy letters like i was trying <laughs> to explain how important her art was and now that I think about it, I'm like, I just hope it never got to her, like, really very odd handwritten letters with including pictures that I'd drawn as well. That's so, so cute. But I think my worst one, maybe not my worst one, but my biggest fangirl moment was when I saw Sharon Van Etten at the um, Spiegel tent, like, a few years ago. Maybe it was, like, four or five years ago now. And I had just been listening to her most recent album at the time on repeat like I'm really bad at doing that thing where you hear a good album and you're like cool I'm gonna listen to this a thousand times and I'm not gonna listen to other music so I was really relating to a lot of her lyrics and I saw her across the room um at a different thing afterwards and I was like I'm gonna go and talk to her and all my (laughs) friends were like Izzy don't do it because you're gonna get emotional and I was like I'm not I'm gonna be fine like I'm just gonna gonna be cool they're like okay if you're gonna be cool like do it we'll but like you. just don't be weird and I was like I'm not gonna be weird went up to her was totally weird <laughs> and she ended up and I started being like the light like I started off okay and I was like hey man like really appreciate your work <laughs> and then she was like oh thank you and I was like and also the part where you say the thing and she was like okay calm down <laughs> and I just like looked over and my friends were like we told you don't be weird so that was probably the worst one so but <laughs> if you've got a, a better story or maybe a worse story than, <laughs> than Izzy's fangirl Sharon Bennett and uh, time please text us 0409 945 945, tell us who you love and admire and what the creepiest thing that you've done. Yeah, it would make in, me feel better, I yeah, think, if I Yeah, maybe heard give of... us a, a, a backup story on how we're not <laughs> total weirdos. Uh, speaking of idols, Solange quit Twitter this week, which I originally read as a um, headline of an article that said she was done with racist, ugly-ass fuckboys. And I was like, yes, go Solange. And then I kind of read her tweet from before her Twitter exit, and it was quite devastating and explained how her son was starting his first day back at school while all the awful Unite the Right protests... Um, um, and violence was happening in the States. And 
I think, yeah, while that yeah. is kind of a good news story, I think we should talk about it. Yeah, I think it would be remiss of us to ignore the events of Charlottesville in Virginia this week. Um, and we're not going to be pulling a Tina, Va- Tina Fey and telling you to simply stay home and eat cake. Um, but we will be coming back to a very pertinent and important research that we're, um, resource, pardon me, that we recommend you all check out. It's called A Syllabus for White People to Educate Themselves. Um, and it's really, it's got everything. White privilege, the white male rage narrative, debunking the progress narrative, four ways to navigate whiteness and feminism without being a white feminist and her story of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, So like I said, we're going to be coming back to this resource throughout the show and we definitely recommend um, that you check it out and educate yourself. Yeah, it's also got a really great list of non-fiction books, memoirs and essays and movies and fiction books and um, some great children's books on how to help kids understand the fight for racial equality, which I think is kind of one of the most important ones that tends to get overlooked. Absolutely. I think um, I hadn't really thought about this so much until recent times, I guess, but I think um, what I've heard um, in the last few weeks is that a lot of quite progressive white parents will often avoid conversations about race beyond very vague platitudes with the idea that race is something that very young children won't clock or internalize um, until much later. Uh, and that's when you wake up and your son is a chinless, um, <laughs> you know, polar wearing tiki torch brandishing young man. So it's really oh good that um, there are some great resources in the syllabus. But I think um, one of the main takeaways from that is that, you know, with children, not necessarily your children, but all children from a very young age. Just that you start educating ad- other people's children <laughs> Actually, <in cafes. laughs> I think oh, it's not Hello, beyond me. Young child. But, you know, like when you're watching a television show or reading a book with a young child and every single character is white, it's important to identify that name whiteness so that it's not this kind of invisible white is the norm everything outside of that is different um identifying that I think is really important um and affirming children's questions when they talk about race and saying you know thank you for asking that that's important that you recognize that or that it makes you feel this way and pointing out uncomfortability which is incredibly difficult for anyone but it is important to um, point out when things are uncomfortable um, or if they make you feel you know if they make you feel sad or they make you feel a certain way Um, and also just pointing out when stereotypes um, occur and saying that it's important that you like kind of trouble those stereotypes and also just talking about unfairness and fairness not so much like this is good, this is bad, but saying like this is complicated. And and this is the structure as to mm. why that person is on that screen and why all of them are on that screen and that kind of... So, yeah, this has been parenting advice from Katie, <laughs> Katie and Izzy <laughs> yeah. who don't have children and don't know what they're talking about. But I think that um, we'd recommend, once again, going back to that resource. Yeah, I think we're just quoting the, um, that resource as something that we will check back in through throughout the show. Yeah, I think um, the main part is that we just don't want you to sit home and eat cake, though. Oh, my God, get over Tina Fey's <laughs> cake comments. Everyone knows she's an idiot. Well, I don't think she's an idiot, but it was really irresponsible, I think. And I think she's a really funny, funny, funny lady. But I just think it's like in this kind of time, telling people to sit home and saying that it's okay to do nothing is like really odd. Yeah, you should definitely hold Tina Fey accountable for her actions. Um, I'm sure she'll be very upset that you're slandering her on oh, yeah, a very widespread, <laughs> well-listened to uh, popular platform and you should probably be careful of defamation actions. I see you, Tina. Um, <laughs> but back to the matter at hand. By now you've probably seen the Unite the Right protests that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia in the United States last Saturday. So thousands of white supremacists attended a rally organised by Jason Kessler to protest the pending removal and sale of a state um, Confederate General Robert 
Robert E. Lee in the park that was renamed Emancipation. Of a statue. Of, a statue, yeah. sorry. What did I say? Not, not of a general. Not a of a statue actual, of a general. Yeah. Statue of a general. Um, and I think it's important to get some context of Virginia and Charlottesville in particular. Um, it's a place that really prides itself on this idea of Southern gentility. So, for example, UVA, which is the um, university in Virginia, um, if you're if you're accepted into the university, one of your induction activities is to go on a tour of like the very beautiful slave master's plantation. And so for many students, but particularly for students of colour, the subtext of that kind of normalising and kind of mythologising and romanticising, um, you know, slavery is the subtext is like, oh, slavery was bad. But, you know, like wink, wink. It was very pretty. And maybe it wasn't like that bad. And I think one of the things that I, I was very struck by in that Vice um, special that came out this week was even just like the optics of having the statue of General Robert E. Lee um, at the top of the city. I think it um, was it's horrible to think that like for many African-American residents in Charlottesville, they get up for work every morning and they literally open their door, look up at the slave master. It's kind of this didn't come out of nowhere, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And it's that kind of old South that I think um, America, that kind of old America that Trump is kind of trying to make great again. Um, and I'm not being too conspiratorial, I don't think, um, because Trump announced that his presidential campaign in the same month that Dylan Storm Roof um, killed nine African-American people in a church in Charleston in South Carolina. Um, and so all of these things are kind of happening in tandem and... I think they're deeply related. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to bring it back to that syllabus for white people to educate themselves mm. resource that we've been talking about today, there's like a bunch of sections in that that you can read on how we can recognise that the United States has always been and is still currently a white supremacist state. There's like a whole section on um, that that asks how exactly do white supremacy and systemic racism operate? And I think that's a really good um, resource and a bunch of articles to read on like why or like what the context of these kind of actions are. Um, yeah, and just I think the fact that white supremacy is in many ways bolstered by well-meaning but relatively politically inactive white people yeah, who and see themselves as progressive but are happy to, once again, just going to drag Tina Fey again, oh but God. like sit home and eat cake. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, complicity was pretty clearly articulated in Donald Trump's response to the rallies mm -hmm. and it took several hours for him to post a statement that didn't even explicitly name white supremacists. It just said, we all must be united and condemn all that hate stands for. There is no place for this kind of violence in America. Let's come together as one, which is like, I don't know, just the fact that it took him, what, like nearly 24 hours to respond to that is so... Yeah, and there's so telling much, yeah. in that silence, and there's so much violence in in that silence as well, um, which I guess is different to um, the brand Brandis's very very swift kind of rebuttal of Pauline Hanson's stunt in Parliament the other yeah. day. Um, so uh, she was wearing a burqa to to try know? and articulate her belief that burqas should be banned in Australia, mm. and he pretty swiftly stood up to it. And I actually think that it was quite good what he did, and regardless of his like national security motivations that were probably underlying mm. that he like the the end of it he was like saying to her it's absolutely consistent with being a good law-abiding Australian and being a strict adherent Muslim and to ridicule that community to drive it into a corner to mock its religious garments is an appalling thing to do I would ask that you reflect on that and I think for me that was really important for that to be in mainstream media rather mm. than the silence around that like I think if no one had done anything and she had pulled that stunt yeah it would have been so much worse yeah I, I mean I get that it was good but I also think that I think about the spike in verbal and physical attacks. It all kind of 
happen in the wake of her stunt. And so, like, women who choose to cover themselves experience so much abuse in Australia to the extent that some parents have told their daughters in recent years to just not cover themselves as a safety precaution. Um, and I think it's like, you know, big ups to Brandis for doing the decent thing, but it's also um, that rhetoric is out there. And I just feel like Pauline Hanson was smirking when he was delivering his kind of rebuttal or whatever it's called, response. And so that kind of rhetoric, that language and that normalisation is already out there and it's being shared. Oh, yeah, then. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I do think that it, it, it has... That's the one thing that really annoyed me about it as well was the fact that everyone was like, a lot of responses that I saw were kind of like, oh, Pauline Hanson's an idiot. And I was like, yeah, she's an idiot, but this has like a really direct mm. um, implication for a lot of people that is quite violent and mm. hateful. Um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio where we've been going through this week's particularly uh, saddening news stories. And I think something that we're going to gift you with now is a wonderful song that we didn't get a chance to play during NADOC week when Spotify released their great Black Australia playlist, but we've been recently uh, rediscovering Shakea, who are two girls from Cairns that became pretty huge in the early 2000s, and they toured, actually toured with Destiny's Child, Usher, Kylie so Minogue, cool. and Jerul. Um, I don't know about you, but I loved this song when it came out. It was I'm pretty sure it was on one of my So Fresh CDs. Yeah, it was huge for 2002. Uh, 2002? Yeah, yeah, 2002, and I never knew they were from Cairns, so... Yeah, yeah. Here is Shakea with Cinderella. Stick around because after this we'll be chatting to the cast and crew and director of an incredible play that's happening at Belvoir Theatre at the moment called Here. You're on Agenda on FBI Radio. I'm not your little princess anymore. Are you feeling this now? Put your hands up in the air now. Are you feeling this now? Put your hands up in the air.
you feeling this now? Put your hands up in the air. Are you feeling this now? Put your hands up in the air now. Are you feeling this now? Put your hands up in the air. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined by director Anthea Williams, associate artist Lucky Price, and lead actor Kurt Pimblett for the current showing play, currently showing play at the Belvoir Theatre called Here, and it's one that we saw last night. We have a lot to talk about. A lot we're of very feelings. excited. A lot of feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen the play or who hasn't maybe done any reading about it, uh, would one of you mind giving like a short background or a short synopsis without giving too much away? I think everyone that's an answer. <laughs> everyone just looked at me. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so the play is called Here, spelt H-I-R, and that's a gender-neutral pronoun. And it's a play that's about place and it's about family. It's actually like it sits in the um, it sits in the movement of beautiful American family plays. So, you know, you can relate it through to things like August Osage County and Buried Child. But it's basically like dysfunctional society through dysfunctional family. So in the play, Isaac has been in Afghanistan for three years and he comes home. He's always had an abusive, aggressive father, Arnold, who's really ruled the family with an iron fist. This guy was like breaking people's fingers if they left dishes in the sink. And his father's had a stroke and his mother, Paige, is now running the household and she is dynamically changing everything. And his sibling, Max, is transitioning. So Max is this beautiful young character who's like all the hope for the future in the play. And Isaac is dealing with how this how this fits. And much as he doesn't want his father to be abusive, he also doesn't like that things have changed. And it, the play is about how the four of them deal with deal with all these changes in the family yeah yeah right and here has been enjoying success around the world and I was wondering about how those different iterations in America um, and in England as well I think Mm. um, how they compared to the Belvoir production so I was also thinking about how for example Jill Soloway has come out and said that she'll never cast a cisgendered person in a transgender role after Transparent and some of the flack that she got because of that and I was wondering if Taylor Mack was explicit in that in yeah Taylor's totally explicit about Uh that that the character of Max needs to be cast as someone who was born biologically female but is transitioning Uh, and we absolutely I wouldn't have done this play if we couldn't find a fabulous young trans performer to do it but luckily we found Kurt who's amazing you absolutely did (laughs) Yeah. yeah and and that's so important because that role is really it's not just that you want someone to embody that role Um, which you absolutely do but also that that role is so much about hope and the future and and Max is such an intelligent young person in the play but we we not only did that because of course I'm a cis director and I I didn't feel like I wanted that person who was going to be the youngest person in the room to actually have the burden of being responsible for like being the expert on all things trans in the room and so Lucky who is here with us today helped me cast the play 
But then I went, no, 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 that's not enough. Lucky, you need to come on this journey because we fell artistically in love. And we so did. <laughs> so it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, so Lucky's been involved with the whole show. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions. There's quite a beautiful line in the press release that describes you as a um, self-described translator. Yes. Can you tell us what that means? Well, that's a new term I coined. Um, yeah. um, I transitioned, I started transitioning uh, in 2014. Um, and during the course of my transition, I actually started documenting my transition. I've said transition a few times now in that sentence. Um, and uh, as a result, um, I've kind of created a platform where I've been very happy to talk and be very visible about my transness. Um, and I come from an arts background. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit through this that um, I was able to come on board to the production and uh, give sort of advice or... Um, just explain it from a trans perspective how we could kind of, you know, traverse some of the space of the play. Yeah, I think it's helpful that you do have a translator, particularly because some of the conversations around the trans experience and just gender experiences can be very intimidating for even like very well-meaning relatives, I imagine, can try very hard and fail. And there is a lot of kind of fumbling in the family that is like so beautiful with the mother and um, and with Max, just that kind of when she's talking about where all fish and things like that, it's like so beautiful. And so I was wondering if you are like in the experience, if you found that there was a lot of learning happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, a, a lot of the, the you know, of that space too, there's so much fear around the right language to use and, you know, and mistakes that we'll make around that language um, to the point there's a wonderful, especially uh, Paige has a beautiful um speech or section in the, in the play where she describes the gender neutral pronouns and how to refer to Max. Um, and it's, you know, a good 12 pages of really quite, you know, fast paced, almost absurd text. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very descriptive and it, and it's, it, it almost highlights the absurdity um, and of that space, you know, mm. and the danger of that space as well. I think it's like it was absurd and then she talks about how... Um, uh, I can't remember the father's name, but how Arnold, he, Arnold, Arnold. called her um, a rib. rib. Yeah. And you realise how absurd the patriarchy is and you're like, oh my God, like that's what we're telling all, oh, that's what like a lot of people are told that, you know, you're made out of rib. And so even though she goes on this whole monologue that seems like completely a little bit wacky about the... We're all transgender fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, that's a bit weird. And then he's like, no, that's like, in it comparison, makes, it's like, yeah. yeah. Like comparatively, it mm. makes the uh, the um, the terminology that her husband uses to describe her seem wa- much more absurd, and that's quite a beautiful. That, yeah, that's part right. Of it. And also, by the same token, Paige is constantly um, bringing up uh, Isaac's use of language and profanity, yeah. and uh, constantly correcting him or asking him to correct his language. Mm. Um, so if he swears or if he says Ghana or things yeah. such mm. as that. So in comparison, then to the way we sort of we find it so hard to use the pronouns that people want but you know we we watch our p's and q's when we need to in other social situations yeah yeah kurt i'm really struggling to see you as kurt and not max like (laughs) after such an incredible (laughs) portrayal of that character um have you found that you've had any like what are the conversations that you've had um around this play after you've had people have you had many people who have come to see it that have wanted to kind of talk to you about it or like what are the kind of conversations that have come out of that um To be honest, not that not that many ones that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Um, the weirdest 
Well, like, the one that struck me was just this dude telling me the other night at opening, I was, I don't know, I don't know what I was talking about, but he <laughs> was, he was saying, like, you know, you don't have to just be a trans actor, you can, like, you know, you can ignore that, you can just be a regular actor, and I'm like, I understand what you're saying, but also at the same time, I can't, Yeah. and I'm not sure, well, like, obviously, like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as, as an artist or a performer, but at the same time, like, it's not something you can just take off. Mm. But it's also a play that he's, that audience member has come to see to that's very much about a trans experience as well so to kind of say to you in that context well and by the same token kurt you are a regular actor (laughs) you're well yeah like i know (laughs) (laughs) you know so it's kind of an absurd argument yeah like you know did he mean that you can only play trans roles or that you can't you don't have to yeah yeah no i think he was trying to be liberating or empowering yeah um which is quite incredible because that's a lot of the content of the play as well. Like he's just reflected back that experience of the family who are trying to be liberating. Like I, for me, having that mother who was so on board with everything but didn't really understand the depths or nuances and she's kind of trying to take lead from um, Max but she is, yeah, kind of fumbling around that all the time. I feel like that's the perfect articulation of that experience. Max is homeschooling yeah. her. I like yeah. that idea. Yeah. I was wondering also about like there's – there's so many moments where you're like laughing and then you're like, oh, this is like horrifying going between that. And there was one moment where Paige is talking about like, I think it was like being flicked or something like that. And it was so, it was so horrible to hear. And then like three, I heard like three or four like older men voices laughing at that moment. And I was like, I wonder, it's funny where people laugh and where people don't laugh. And I was wondering if that changes night to night, if you're surprised at like the points where people are like horrified when you think it's a joke or... Totally. Mm. Look, um, there's always different rumblings of laughter. And Taylor Mack has this beautiful manifesto about Taylor's writing and um, and about generally what theatre is and talks about how the show should be different every night. And I really think that's true. But it's really interesting watching different camps of people in the audience because you know there's some lines in it where I'm like if there are theatre makers in the audience they are going to laugh at this and Helen when I first said that to her she was like that line is not funny and of course (laughs) sure enough opening night laughter that went on for like multiple seconds and you know same with our company run but other nights it won't get a laugh Mm. but it is really interesting watching it and you know the play starts off and Arnold is being dressed in a nightgown and in makeup and um it's amazing watching older men find that really, really troubling and really problematic and sometimes being really, really angry about it. And the more you find out about Arnold, the more you realise that that's, you know, actually, you know, a lot of other people are like, it's, she's she's amazing. Paige is amazing that she still cares for this man after everything he's done for her. And you find out more and more and more as the play goes on. But I, I just find that so remarkable that people are so offended by that because the character doesn't mind wearing a dress and the mm. character doesn't really mind wearing makeup. It's not a revenge narrative in that way at all. But, you know, and I, it always makes me laugh because I'm like, those guys are going to go home and watch SVU. Or okay. Game of Thrones or something. Oh, yeah, something like watch, where yeah. it's just really regular entertainment that women are being raped and murdered and we constantly see that it's not a big deal but they're freaking out about a nightgown that a character doesn't even mind wearing Mm. it's just yeah he's kind of like he's like do you like wearing the dress and he's like meh (laughs) (laughs) and then in the part where he's like dancing around in a dress as well like I find that really beautiful he's like getting really into it with the puppetry and they're like yeah yeah. I know when I first read the play I just was I was so happy that that character had found that 
you know, that liberation. Mm. And I think um, Taylor's play is just so great at um, treating, you know, you find sympathy and understanding for all the characters. That's something that we definitely came out of the first act being like, I really, yeah, there are elements of all of those characters that are in people that you know as well. Like it's such a, um, I think one of the most incredible parts of it was that you have empathy for everyone Mm. kind of throughout. And that's maybe the most powerful when the really kind of horrible things happen as well because Mm. you identify with them. Um, How long is the play on until? (laughs) (laughs) We're sharing microphones. (laughs) It's... On until the 10th of September. So we'll pop a link up on our show page to where people can buy tickets to it. And we highly encourage you to get tickets before they sell out. Thank you so much um, to you all for coming in today to talk to us about here. Uh, You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. We're going to leave you with a track from Solange called Weary. We're all feeling a little bit weary (laughs) this week, but hopefully we can keep on going. Go and see the play and maybe you'll feel less weary. Definitely. (laughs)